Scripture today comes from John chapter 4, 1 through 18. John chapter 4, 1 through 18. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus worried as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty will have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Good morning, New Hope. Thanks, Q, for reading for us. It's really great to see all of you. Before we jump into God's word, I'm going to invite you to pray with me and ask the Lord to provide us with the eyes that we need and the ears and the hearts we need to receive this truth. Let's ask God for help. Lord, we come before your word this morning knowing that your word is powerful, that it is true, that it cuts deep surgically to reveal what's deep inside of us, and also to bring healing and transformation to us. But Lord, we also confess that although your word is powerful, we are often dull to it. We don't respond the way we should to it. We don't see it as true and powerful. So Lord, would you move by the power of your spirit to awaken us, awaken us to the power of your word. More than anything, Lord, awaken us to the reality of who Jesus Christ is. We ask it in his name. Amen. There are some stories that can become so familiar to us that we think that we know them inside and out. So if you've grown up around the church, this story that Q just read to us might be one of those stories. You feel like you know it. You've known it for a long time. But, but I've been praying this week that, that all of us would see this with fresh eyes today. Whether you've heard this story countless times or, or whether it's a new narrative for you, I've been praying that we would all listen to Jesus' words here and, and that we'd see him clearly, that we would see his character, that we would see his heart, his power, and that we would see him with fresh eyes. Here's what we need to recognize about Jesus Christ here today. There are three things I'm hoping we'll see. One, Jesus Christ sees you like no one else can. Two, Jesus Christ knows that we're all thirsty. And thirdly, Jesus Christ promises to quench your thirst. 
Those are the three things we want to see about Jesus Christ here. And the first one is this. Jesus Christ sees you like no one else can see you. He befriends a woman here in John chapter 4. He's so humble, Jesus is. He's so generous. He's so fearless. And, And we know that because if he wasn't all those things, he would never have befriended this woman. We don't know her name, but what we do know about her is this. She is a Samaritan. I don't know how many of you have any Samaritan friends. I don't know any Samaritan people personally. I want to give you a little bit of a geography lesson with with a little bit of history thrown in uh, as a bonus. Let's let's look at this map real quick. This, This whole region that's shown here was once occupied by Jewish people, by the Israeli people. In 722 BC, Samaria, that section that you can see right there in the center, it was invaded by the Assyrian kingdom. These invaders who came in, they deported most of the Israelis who lived in there. And what they did is they replaced those people. They deported the people who actually lived there, the native people, and they replaced them with people from other regions, from other countries, to repopulate the region. And so what happened is as these new people were brought in to mix in with some of the remaining Jewish people who lived there, what you ended up with was a kind of a melting pot. The the foreign people and the original Jewish people who lived there started to intermarry. And so you had this mixture of ethnicities, this mixture of cultures and of religions. So eventually, Jews, that is those who were not mixed ethnically and culturally and religiously, they started to view the Samaritans as not really purely Jewish. They started to see them as as a corrupted population, as as half-breeds. The Samaritans, their their religion was also corrupted by foreign religions. In fact, in 400 BC, the Samaritan people, they built a temple. Now, Now, this is interesting because the Jewish people already had a temple in Jerusalem. The Samaritan people, however, built a new temple of their own. And they said, we're not going to worship in Jerusalem, we're going to worship at our temple. Eventually, Israeli forces destroyed that temple. It was part of an ongoing war. So you see, the Jewish people and the Samaritan people had history. There was racial prejudice here. There was even war. There was so much bad blood between them. So when Jesus and his disciples, they're going to travel up to Galilee. We can look at the map one more time. They're going from that southern section there of Judea, you can see the the Jordan River there traveling traveling, um, vertically. Jesus had been baptizing in that Jordan River in the region of Judea. When his disciples decide to go up to Galilee, they decide to go right through Samaria. Now that in and of itself is not a big deal. Jews would do that all the time. Sometimes they would take the long way around to avoid Samaria, but most of the time they'd say, hey, you know, we don't really like the Samaritans. They're, 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 um, they're uh, uh, an unclean people. We despise them, but we don't like walking further than we have to either. So we'll cut through Samaria. That was normal. But what's amazing here is that Jesus decides to befriend someone along the way. Look at at verse 3 of John chapter 4. It says, Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Let's just pause there for a second, because this is a really cool little detail. We, um, just a few months ago, went through the story of Joseph at the end of the book of Genesis. And if you were here for any of that, you might remember that when Joseph's father, Jacob, was on his deathbed, he gave Joseph a plot of land. That's the plot of land that they're referring to right here, in Samaria, near this place called Sychar. This field, this, this plot of real estate that Jacob had given to Joseph. Now verse 6, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Sixth hour means that it was about noon. 
The Jews at this time would start counting the hours from 6 a.m. So hour one is 6 a.m. The sixth hour was noon. He's been traveling all day. He's in this desert region, and Jesus is exalted. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, is fully God and yet also fully human. He was a man, a human being like any one of us sitting here. He suffered from sunstroke and dehydration and physical fatigue. These are all a reality for him. And so here we see Jesus in a moment of real weakness. He needs to sit down. In verse 7, it says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. She's surprised. Now that last line there, where it says Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, really what it, what it means, in a, in a more accurate translation, would be something like this. Jews don't share with Samaritans. In other words, they don't share cups. They don't drink from the same bottle. Why not? Because Samaritans, according to the Jews, were dirty. They were unclean. I'm not going to put my mouth where a Samaritan puts his or her mouth. It might remind you of our own history as a nation. Not only, but especially in the segregated South, where the dividing line was between black and white. Separate water fountains. Separate bathrooms, right? Black people use that water fountain. White people use this water fountain. Why? Because we don't want to put our mouths where they put their mouths. That was the thinking amongst the powerful, amongst the majority white population. Separate bathrooms, separate swimming pools, too. Did you know this? I just found this out this week, that up until 1970, the YMCA, which, by the way, ironically, is the Young Men's Christian Association, the YMCA still ran swim programs that were off-limits to black children. Black kids could not swim in the same YMCA pools. That's 1970, okay? Some of us are old enough to realize that 1970 was really not that long ago at all. Some of you feel like it was a long time ago, but it's relative. So what Jesus is doing here really shocks this woman. And it should shock us too. She's a Samaritan. And on top of that, she's a woman. And that, may, that means something as well. People didn't just sit down and strike up conversations with members of the opposite sex in this culture. Seem kind of strange to us, but back then a guy just wouldn't sit down next to a woman that he didn't know and just talk. Jesus does it anyway, but there's more. There's more shocking information here. Look at verse 16. Jesus says to this woman, We're jumping to the end of this section, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. This is a woman with a messy past. In fact, she has a very messy present as well. Her life, her life wasn't pristine. She might try to hide that, but Jesus sees right through it. Because remember, the point we're making is that Jesus sees you like no one else can see you. He sees through any facade that she might be holding up. She might look fine on the outside. Jesus sees that she's not. He sees that she's got a messy past and a very messy present. Her life is a wreck. Remember, we said that this was noon, right? Interesting cultural fact. No one came to draw water from the well at noon. Why? This is a desert. It is hot. So people would normally come, and women were normally the ones who would be drawing water. What would happen is they would come early in the morning, say around the break of dawn, or they would come later after the sun had gone down. And it was kind of a community event. You'd go with your friends. And this time of drawing water was a time to catch up. Maybe gossip. 
It was a time to, to share lives with one another. And what they would do is they draw enough water for the rest of the day or enough water for the following day. They check in on one another along the way and share stories. But this woman, she doesn't go with a group of friends. She goes to the well by herself, and that's significant. She comes when she expects no one to be there. Why? There's one word for it. It's shame. Shame. You see, if she comes at noon, she doesn't have to deal with all the looks that she's going to get, the whispers, the jokes, and the insults. Why? Because she's had five husbands, and now she's living with a man who's not her husband. We don't know how many kids she has or by how many different men. We don't know how many other men she's known and been with over the course of those marriages. But the people in that small community... Oh, I'm sure they had lots of information about her. And they would share it, and they'd give her the side eye, and they'd gossip, maybe laugh, maybe keep their kids away, keep their men especially away from her. So she comes when she'd be alone. But today she's not alone. There's this Jewish man there, and he asks her for a favor. He, he actually engages her. And, and in doing so, he's giving her respect. He's, he's, he's giving her dignity. You see, it's clear from the very outset that Jesus does not see her the way everyone else sees her. To him, she's not just a marked woman. She's not just a woman with a messy past. He, he knows her whole story. He knows the complexities of it. Why did she have five husbands? He knew why. What, what abuses might she have experienced, endured over the course of her lifetime at the hands of those husbands and at the hands of this community? What kinds of ways had she been victimized? He knew. Why was she with this man that she's living with now? He knew exactly why. She didn't even have to tell him. And, and you see, Jesus doesn't give her a pass on all that and say, hey, you know, you're fine, your life is fine, the way you're living is okay. Don't, he doesn't give her a pass, no. But he understands her in a way that no one else could. And so even as he starts to talk to her about the messiness of her life, even as he starts to talk to her about her sin, he does it with gentleness. He does it with understanding. He does it like no one else has ever done for her in her whole life. Do you ever feel like no one understands you? Like there's certain aspects about your life, the way you feel, the things that you're going through, you try to explain them to other people, but they just don't get it. Even the people closest to you, the people that say, listen, you can tell me anything. I want you to tell me anything. And yet when you tell them, they just don't understand you. Maybe you're young and it's your parents. You, you want to trust them and they want you to trust them as well. But you wonder, do they really get me? Do they really understand what it's like to go to school every day and face the kinds of things I need to face every day? Do they really know what it's like to have the kinds of friends I have? and to face the kinds of pressures I face every day when I walk into that school building, or every time I get on that school bus. Maybe the days of school buses and classrooms are long behind for you, but you still don't feel understood. Jesus comes to us in this passage and says, if you are alone, and if at times you feel like an outsider, he can be trusted. You see, he will deal with your suffering with gentleness. And he'll deal with your sin with understanding like no one else ever could. Some people might look at the kinds of struggles that you're facing and dismiss them. Say, oh, that's no big deal. 
someone, a young person in my own family shared with me some of the difficulties that they were facing with some friends at school lately. And I have to admit that my first response was to think, oh, that's no big deal. That's just school drama. That's just kids being kids. I dismissed it. And over time, as, as this, this child, I'm trying to be very guarded about like, not sharing their gender or anything, so you don't know which kid I'm talking about. But as this kid shares with me more about what they're experiencing in school, I start to realize, this is deep hurt. This is pain and shame, and it's challenging. And I had to confess, I, I did not understand. I still don't fully understand what you're going through, but I want to understand more deeply. But I could also say this. Even when I was dismissing you, the Lord was not. <laughs> you see, the Lord listens. He knows even before you speak it, he knows you like no one else could, and he approaches you with a kind of gentleness and generosity that he approaches this woman with by this well in Samaria. You can trust him. You can trust him. See, this Samaritan woman wasn't just an outcast because all Samaritans were outcasts. She was an outcast even amongst the outcasts. If her ethnicity and her culture didn't make her unclean, then her messy, sinful life made her unclean. But that does not scare Jesus away. You know, it's interesting, John, the author of this gospel, he might be trying to show us this very powerful contrast just a few verses back in the last chapter, Jesus is talking to a man named Nicodemus. You remember Nicodemus? He was powerful. He was respected. He was theologically trained. He knew a lot about the Bible. He had influence. Now Jesus is talking to someone who's kind of on the other end of the spectrum socially. She's not, probably not educated, not theologically knowledgeable. She doesn't know a lot about the Bible or about God. She's not powerful. She's totally not respected. Nicodemus was a man. He had power. She does not at all. He was moral, at least outwardly. She, no, not at all. And yet, John wants us to see that Jesus views both these people in very similar ways. He sees the details of their lives, and he, and he loves each one in a unique way. But, but... There's no, he doesn't consider one of them any better than the other. He sees that they both, they both need him. He knows that they both need Jesus. And he knows this about us as well. He knows that about you as sure as you're sitting here. Because he sees you like no one else can. And, and with all that he knows about you, he longs to befriend you. 2nd thing we want to see about Jesus here. Jesus Christ knows that we're all thirsty. This conversation starts out pretty simple, but it gets deep really quick. <laughs> Look at what happens in verse 9. The Samaritan woman says to Jesus, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So at this point, it's pretty clear. Jesus isn't just talking about H2O here, is he? He's using metaphors. Water, living water, what does it mean? Water equals life. Real life. To us, that might, we might miss that because we've got, there's water everywhere around us, right? We got a river right down, this, right down this street here. But more than that, most of us have refrigerators full of water. We have taps that we can turn on and off at will. We have coolers in our workplaces. 
We walk around, some of us, with water bottles. We've got water everywhere. We like to stay hydrated. It's important to us. With these people, you see how we differ from the people to whom Je amongst whom Jesus was living. Very different culture. This was a desert community. For these people, water wasn't in abundance everywhere. Water was precious. It was a rare commodity. You would travel to go get water. And you'd save it up. And you'd use it carefully to cook and to bathe and to drink. But you wouldn't waste it because you never knew if you'd be able to get more. At least not easily. So here's Jesus sitting by this well that's filled with one of the most valuable commodities in that culture. Precious water. And he says, this water, it's nothing compared to the kind of water that I can give you. The living water that I can provide. By the way, this well that they were sitting by, this well still exists today. It had been dug about 2,000 years before Jesus was there. Um, uh, Jacob would have dug it, or his people would have dug it out um, 2,000 years before this whole thing happened. Now, 2,000 plus years later, this well still functions. People still get water from it. It's kind of a tourist attraction now, of course, too, but you can still get water. It's actually not just a well. There was actually a spring under the ground, and this spring, would, it constantly, even now, continues to supply water into that well. But Jesus starts talking about another kind of water and another kind of thirst. And at first, this woman doesn't really get what he's talking about. She takes him literally. That's what happens usually when Jesus starts talking metaphorically with people. Nicodemus did the same thing, right? If you remember, Jesus says, you need to be born again. He says, what do you mean? How do I go back into the womb of my mother? Right? She does the same thing. Takes him completely literally. But he clarifies. Verse 11. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. You see, by the end there, it sounds like she's starting to get what he's talking about. But do you get what he's talking about? Jesus is pointing to this well, and he's saying anyone who drinks from here is going to get thirsty again. What he's telling us is that every single one of us is thirsty for something. Our souls are thirsty. Every single one of us is restless and, and craving something that will make us feel right. Craving something that will leave us feeling satisfied at least for a little while. And we try to quench that thirst with different kinds of things. Maybe some of us, we learned how to quench our thirst with different things by observing, maybe observing our parents or the people around us. We, we learned these strategies. We found ways to try to quench our thirst. But we're finding that it's not working. So, for instance, some of you will quench your thirst by buying stuff. It's one example. You hope that by accumulating possessions, or, or maybe by accumulating the right possessions, you'll feel satisfaction. So when you're restless, you shop. And it's much easier now than it used to be, right? Click, add to cart, complete purchase. Or maybe it's just the, the buy with one click, right? And then there's this, ah, satisfaction. I really wanted that. My life will be better with that. There's this immediate sense of rest. My thirst has been quenched for a little while, not for long. 
until the next ad pops up. Some of us try to quench our thirst with food. When you feel restless or you feel troubled, maybe a meal makes you feel better for a little while. Maybe it's not a proper meal, maybe it's just some ice cream. For so many of us, especially in our culture, I think that we try to quench our thirst with our career, with, 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 uh, with getting the position we want, or completing the project that we've been working on. Whatever you measure success by in your career, you look to that as a means of thirst quenching. Some of us try to quench our thirst with people. It seems to be what this woman was doing. She may have tried to, to quench her thirst with men. Maybe for you, it's, it's looking for that right relationship. If you found that right relationship, you'd finally feel okay about yourself and your life. Or if that particular person would be your friend. Or if you just had more friends. You see, we use people sometimes to quench our thirst. Maybe it's not friendship as much as just attention. If you could just get the attention of the people around you for a little while, some compliments. If you felt popular for a little while, wouldn't that quench your thirst a little bit? And so whether it's in school or whether it's in our workplace, we want attention. Social media has made this even more of a problem, I think. We can quickly and easily get people to pay attention to us with the things that we post or the pictures that we share. We get some compliments. We get people to, to cast a look in our direction and say, oh, you're doing well. This is good. I approve of you. And for a little while, the soul thirst goes away, but it comes right back. For most of us, this isn't news, is it? We know that this is the way our hearts work. We realize that we're thirsty and we're always trying to find satisfaction in the wrong things. We see it in our lives and we see it in the lives of others. Tom Brady is quarterback for New England Patriots. And as much as I'd hate to admit it, he's arguably the best quarterback who's ever lived. I can't believe I even said that, but... I think it's true. Probably. Tom Brady wins. He's a winner. He loves winning. And if you're not a football fan, it doesn't matter. I think the point still remains. I think this will still be a helpful illustration. In 2009, Tom Brady did an interview. And in that interview, he said these words. I am making more money now than I ever thought I could make playing football. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings? And still, I think there's something better out there for me. Maybe a lot of people would say, this is it. You, I've reached my goal, my dream, my life. But me, I think, God, there's got to be more than this. What is he saying? He's saying, I'm still thirsty. Since 2009, he's won two more Super Bowls. Who knows? He doesn't age. He might win more. But he says, I'm still thirsty. The interviewer at this point says to him, so what's the answer, Tom? And here's what Brady says. Brady says, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I wish I knew why I'm still thirsty. Now, now we hear that and we say, yeah, of course. But, but do you really believe it? Because the fact is that many of us would still love to trade places with Tom Brady. even though he plays for the New England Patriots. When I was in college, there was a, a, an actor, a star, a comedian by the name of Jim Carrey. Some of you remember Jim Carrey? Um, he's not so famous anymore. If you're younger, I don't know, who's like a modern day Jim Carrey? Is it Will Farrell? Will Farrell's kind of old too. Kevin Hart maybe, I don't know. He was a very successful comedian. He was one of these guys where every time you see a commercial for a movie come up, you're like, he's in that movie too? He's in every movie, this guy. Well, Jim Carrey, several years ago, said this. 
He says, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see that it's not the answer. This is a very wealthy, famous man saying, I wish you could all have the life that I had just so you could see that you'd still be thirsty. We hear that, but do you really believe that? King Solomon, a celebrity in his own day, he tells us about his own attempts to quench his thirst. In the book of Ecclesiastes, King Solomon lists all the things that he did to satisfy that craving in his heart. He tried laughing and food and drink, and he built awesome houses, and and he accumulated gold and silver, He had servants. He had power. He fulfilled all his sexual fantasies. He even had this reputation for being the wisest man in the world. He tried everything. And here's his thoughts on all of that. Look at what he says in Ecclesiastes 2. He says, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had extended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity. It was all pointless, he says. A striving after the wind... You see, it it was like trying to grasp at a breeze. It just slips through your hands. Or trying to drink from a broken water bottle and everything's pouring out the back end while you're trying to chug it. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. What does that mean? It means in this world, under that sun, there is nothing here that could fulfill my thirst. And I tried Everything. I had the resources and the time and the power to give everything a shot. And none of it worked. Why? Because the things he was trying to use to satisfy him were not made to satisfy him. The things that he was going for and the things that you and I go for, they look promising. And in and of themselves, they may be very good things. They just weren't made to quench your thirst. I had a friend whose father liked to reuse um, containers. Do you reuse containers in your house? Or maybe your parents do this. Like, let's say you've got a jar of pickles. After you use the pickles, you eat the pickles. You keep that jar, you wash it, and you use it to, like, store something else in, right? You put, like, some potato salad or something. I don't know what in there, right? You put it in the fridge. Why buy Tupperware when you could just reuse jars, right? So my friend's dad liked to do this. And one day we were over his house, and another friend, we all came in from outside. We were all sweaty. We were all parched. It was hot out. We come in. My f- one friend opens the fridge, grabs a bottle of Snapple. He's so thirsty that he, does, he just cracks it open and starts chugging it and immediately starts to gag and spit out all this weird fluid out of his mouth. It turns out that my friend's dad had decided to use that Snapple bottle to store some olive oil. I don't know why he put olive oil in a Snapple bottle. I don't know why he put it in the fridge of all places. Maybe he was setting this guy up. But for one reason or another, this thing that was actually very tasty, delicious, beautiful olive oil, aromatic, and perfect for the right thing, It just doesn't quench thirst, does it? If he had taken it and put it on a salad, it would have been like, oh, this is wonderful. Dip some bread in it, great. You see, the very things that we look to to find satisfaction, it's not that those things are somehow bad. It's that we're using them for the wrong thing. Jesus gets to the heart of this woman's search for happiness. She was attempting to quench her thirst with relationships. 
And that probably sounds familiar to us. Because we use relationships for the wrong reason. She, she was moving from one man to another. One mar now, marriage is good, isn't it? Marriage is wonderful. But she's moving from one marriage to another, and it can't satisfy. Why? Because she's trying to make it do what it cannot do. And in trying to make it do what it cannot ever do, she wrecks it. Now, here's the thing. Here's a question we need to ask ourselves. If we all know that that's the case, we all know that we keep going back to these things that never satisfy us. If we know that they cannot satisfy, why do we keep going back to them? Why do we keep trying again? It's, it's, it's rather silly, isn't it? I want to tell you about a guy named Henry Gribbon. I think we've got a picture of Henry Gribbon up here. I'm going to read to you this paragraph from a, a news story about Henry. Henry Gribbon says that he lost his life. Henry Gribbon's the one on the right, not the yellow one. <laughs> Henry Gribbon says he lost his life savings. $2,600 on a carnival game. And all he has to show for it is a stuffed banana with dreadlocks. Gribbon says that he intended a Manchester carnival and he wanted to win an Xbox Connect for his child. And so he played this game called Tubs of Fun where contestants toss balls into a tub and try to win an Xbox. But when he started, the 30-year-old from Epsom says he kept trying to win, but the balls kept bouncing out of the tub. So he kept trying to win again, and, and he, tried, he started going double or nothing. I'm going to keep going. He dropped $300 in just a few minutes. And then he says he went home, and he got $2,300 more. And he came back to the carnival, and he lost that as well. And the people felt so bad for him that he had lost $2,600. They said, we're not going to give you the Xbox, but we'll give you this, this banana with dreadlocks as a consolation prize. It's ridiculous, isn't it? And it's tragic, too. But, but do you see anything of yourself in there? That, that, this tendency to keep, it's not satisfying me. It's not working out, but I'm going to keep doubling down. Try again. Maybe this boyfriend, or maybe this girlfriend, or maybe this promotion will do the trick. Or maybe it's this amount of money, or maybe it's this possession. If I get that new car, if I get that new thing, maybe that will do it. So we keep doubling down. Sometimes maybe we think, look, whatever options do I have? I know that this isn't going to eternally satisfy me, but where else am I going to go? I'm already invested, right? That's what he's thinking. I've already dropped a grand. I might as well keep going. And that's what this woman was doing, actually, the woman in Samaria. She was already invested in going back to the same well every day. I don't mean just the well where she went to get water. I mean the relationships that she kept going back to and trying again and again and again. It's like she's going back to the bad well again. And what happens every time she goes back, it ends in brokenness, it ends in divorce, it ends in shame. She says, what other options do I have? A woman in first century Middle Eastern culture, I need a guy, I'm just going to keep Going back, maybe some of us, we realize we do have other options. So if one thing is not satisfying us, we'll try something new. Kind of like Solomon did. I want to read to you this passage in Jeremiah, verse, chapter 2. It shows us how God views this tendency in our hearts this drive to try to quench our thirst with anything and everything we can get our hands on. He says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What's he saying here? He's saying, my people have dug out wells of their own, they don't trust that I will give them the living water they need, so they dig out their own wells, their own cisterns. There was, it was these, these underground uh, containers for water. But God is saying, but the cisterns, these wells, are they're broken, they're cracked, they're leaky. It's what we do, isn't it? 
If we find that one well isn't working, we go dig a new one. Maybe it's a new job. Maybe it's a new relationship. Maybe it's a new friend. But all of, all of those things have this one thing in common. Every time we do that, we're rejecting God again and again. That's what he says here. He says, look, for my people have committed two evils. And what's the first evil? You have forsaken me. You've rejected me. I'm the one who told you. I am living water for you. So we keep digging new wells, rejecting God, and then trying to satisfy our souls. What do we do? We destroy our souls. So where do we find satisfaction? What God is telling us here in John 4 and in Jeremiah 2 is that if you really want to find satisfaction, thirst quenching for your soul, you need to look outside of this world altogether. C.S. Lewis, he said, if I find in myself a desire, if I've got this desire, this, this thirst that can't be quenched by anything in this world, then the most probable explanation is that I was not made for this world. I was made for another world. You see, the very fact that you cannot quench your thirst with all the stuff you've tried is an indication to you that you can only be satisfied by something from elsewhere, something you were made for. And that's the last point, quickly. Jesus Christ promises to quench your thirst. Remember, we said that Jesus knows you like no one else knows you. He knows you're thirsty. And he's not opposed to you looking for happiness. He, he, Jesus doesn't say, oh, why are you always looking for satisfaction? Why are you always looking for peace? No, he wants you to look for happiness and peace and satisfaction. He made you to pursue those things. But he wants you to see that he's the only one that can give it to you. In this passage in John 4, Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. The water that I will give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus saying to her, stop demanding these men, stop demanding from these men what they can't give you. Come to me, I'll give it to you. You won't have to work for it. You won't have to earn it. I'll give it to you as a gift. Living water. And he's saying the same thing to us. You and I need to see Jesus Christ as our only option. Only option. You see, it's not, look, I can get some satisfaction from my job and some satisfaction from my family and some satisfaction from my friends. I could get some thirst quenching there, but, and I'll add Jesus to that too, and he'll kind of round it out. He'll kind of fill up my life. No, Jesus is saying, He's your only option. And in fact, it's when, it's when your thirst is quenched by him, then you can start to enjoy those, all those other things the way you were meant to. The family, the job, the house, the friends. They all fall into place because you're not using them to quench your thirst. Now they're, they're coming in and they're fitting in where they belong. Your first love needs to be Jesus. And all these other loves need to take their place underneath that. He needs to be our only, only option, our only hope. And that's very risky. I realize that. Even as I say that, how risky it is to say, I am placing all my hope for satisfaction, all my hope for joy in this one person who lived 2,000 years ago and died on a cross? That's risky. How do we know that he'll keep his word? How do we know that he will really carry through and give us the living water he promises? Here's how we know. We'll close with this. If you fast forward about 15 chapters in the book of John, you come to John 19, and you see a scene there. It's Jesus Christ, but he's not sitting by a well. He's hanging on a cross. And it says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, he said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch, and they held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. He did this for that Samaritan woman. He did this for us. We have tried to quench our thirst 
in countless ways. We have rejected God, the fountain of living water. We're guilty of all of that. And what does Jesus do? He's willing to take that guilt upon himself. He's willing to take all that shame. He dies in our place. And and when all the work of suffering and dying is done, what does he say? He says, I'm thirsty. I thirst so that you will never thirst. And what he requires of us is simply to believe. He rose again on the third day, and he sent his spirit to live in those who will believe in him, living water bubbling up the very spirit of God in us. What more proof do we need that he will keep his word? Jesus must become the love of your life. He must be at the very center, and then, then you will enjoy all these other things in their place. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you probably know that it's a struggle to find continued satisfaction in him and stop looking elsewhere. We're constantly tempted to start seeking to quench our thirst with other things. He says, come to me. Believe me again. Abide in me. Abide in me. That means listen to my words. Obey what I'm telling to you. Uh, speak to me. Hear from me. Spend time with me. And as you do that, you will see more and more the reality of this truth. Everyone who receives the living water that Jesus gives us will not thirst again. We're going to come to the Lord's Supper now. And as we come to this table, what are we saying? We're coming confessing. We're saying, Lord, we come to drink this little cup of uh, juice and, and to eat this bread and, and we're confessing, Lord, we've been looking all over the place to quench our thirst and to feed our hunger pangs. We've been looking all over the place, but we're coming back to you. We confess it, we repent of it, and we believe that only you can truly satisfy us. That's what's captured here. So if you're a follower of Christ, I want to invite you to come. Among the, there are other things captured here too, but that's one of the things that are captured here. So if you're a follower of Christ, I want to invite you to come here as the deacons come up and they take this bread and they take this cup and they hand it out freely giving it to you. It's just a little bit of juice and it's just a little bit of bread, but it's meant to remind us of that unstopping, never-ending spring of living water that God promises to all who believe in Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray and I'm going to invite the deacons to come up, take this bread, and serve it to us with this juice. Lord, we come to you confessing our restlessness, We confess to you that we've dug wells for ourselves and they're broken and they don't work and they're... We continue thirsting because we're not abiding in you. So Lord, would you transform us? Would you change this? Use the simple sacrament to plant deep in our hearts the truth that you spoke to this woman 2,000 years ago. We ask in your name. Amen.